Seed oils, the fats that we eat, they truly are killing us. And so what does that mean and why? Dr. Chris Kenobi wrote the book and it is a huge book, laying it all out, the correlations with chronic disease, these metabolic disasters, and so much more. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. Dr. Kenobi, uh, just absolutely thrilled to be visiting with you and getting into your work. Um, I think that you bring up some points that are so important and, and we don't really fully appreciate the angle at which you've come through. So if you will, just introduce yourself and uh, just say how uh, vegetable oils <laughs> popped up to be a big focus for you. All right, Logan. Well, first, thanks for having me on your show. Second, uh, that's the last time you can call me doctor. I don't, I don't allow that. <laughs> um, so, so uh, anyway, um, so my, my history, I am a physician uh, specialized in ophthalmology, eye, eye surgery and physician. And um, I graduated from medical school back in 1990 um, here in Colorado, University of Colorado School of Medicine. Um, I practiced for 21 years, really, before I started getting into nutrition, and which was 2011. And really what led me here, first of all, is my own suffering. I, I won't go into any detail there unless you want me to dig deeper, but it was for me, it was primarily arthritis. And um, I uncovered uh, Lauren Cordain's book in 2011 uh, called The Paleo Answer. Um, I read that I read that book uh, during a week in on a vacation in Mexico, and I was just blown away. This is the first time I ever began to understand that processed foods, driving all of this chronic disease, like coronary heart disease and cancers and such. And anyway, I, I eventually, a couple of years later, as I began to, you know, further investigate, I, I began to, um, I well, first I came across Weston A. Price's uh, work, his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. And um, that's when I really, that, that that's the guide that, that I use today, um, everything that I see uh, in nutrition, I see through the lens of Weston A. Price. And I don't think it's ever misled me. Um, basically, you know, that's the connect, he made the connection between processed foods, which is mostly refined flours, sugars, and vegetable oils um, as the big drivers of, um, you know, uh, degenerative disease is what he called it back at that time, which was primarily um, arthritis, cancers, 
and numerous other degenerative diseases and birth defects and such. And, um, but anyway, in, in, um, I left practice in 2015 to pursue the hypothesis that it may be processed foods driving age-related macular degeneration or AMD, the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. And that, that uh, we published a paper, I published a book, started a nonprofit foundation. And then by about 2018, 2019, Logan, I was, um, I continued to, investigate and I and I I found I kept finding that it was the vegetable oils that were the primary driver of chronic disease just like it was with macular degeneration so I was seeing that it the evidence kept pointing me to the fact that it was vegetable oils driving overweight obesity coronary heart disease cancers diabetes metabolic syndrome alzheimer's disease dementia macular degeneration Autoimmune diseases, probably, I'm pretty sure on that. Um, but anyway, all of these disorders seem to be, I think, primarily related to vegetable oils. We see it in the, the data supports this. The pathophysiology supports this. Um, everywhere I look from the individual level to the national level, um, these to the, to the world, the global world, you know, worldwide level, we, all of this data and evidence supports this hypothesis. And I think, and, and just to get to why, you know, why, and then we can dig into the details, however you like, but to get to why the, the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils. So let me call those seed oils for the moment. And we can come back later and define, but let's, let's just call these seed oils for a moment. These, when you, when you consume these, they accumulate in your body and they are ultimately pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, and nutrient deficient. And I say those are the four pillars of hazard. When you put those together, you have the recipe for metabolic dysfunction, metabolic disaster, and physical degenerative disease, all of this chronic disease. I think it's th this is the, the primary uh, component of our food supply that is driving overweight and chronic disease, period. Which actually may be controversial in the uh, alternative uh, look at the space, right? Because everybody blames sugar. I know when my son yeah. was diagnosed with cancer, what I pretty quickly came to the conclusion of is that disease is going to be a combination of toxicity and deficiencies. And yes. I, the three big groups that I identified were sugar, flowers, and vegetable oils. And I actually ranked sugar's worst, vegetable oils least, and then, you know, the flowers in the middle. But as we've gone into this, your work has been extremely eye-opening in that the correlation follows vegetables way more than it does sugar. Exactly. That is exactly right. And that's what's led me. It's, it's the data, Logan, you know, that keeps leading me back to this, you know, hypothesis, uh, the, the support of this hypothesis, because... Let me, let me tell you that when, um, so I, I was researching macular degeneration 
um, AMD, uh, back in 2013 until 2015, I was still in practice then and um, left practice in February of 2015 to pursue this. We looked at, so I worked with a nutrition researcher from Macedonia, who's a brilliant researcher, uh, Maria Stoyanoska, that she's not well known, but she's a great researcher in terms of digging, da digging out data. And she's the one that gathered our data on sugar and uh, vegetable oil consumption going way back into the 19th century. You know, it's almost never been done. And she's really helped me to accomplish that. But, but anyway, so we looked at data in 25 nations um, vegetable oils and sugar versus macro de degeneration prevalence. And the data, <clears throat> when I started getting the data back, um, one country at a time, they, they all supported the hypothesis that it's processed foods driving macro degeneration. But, and, but the one thing that seemed to be the, you know, the primary driver was the vegetable oils. And then I got data on Kiribati, uh, which is uh, uh, an island nation in the south or maybe might be considered central Pacific. And that data was, uh, I didn't like it at first because the sugar consumption was quite high. And, but they had literal no, little or no vegetable oil consumption. Now, whether or not the, the, the vegetable oil consumption data, I call into question now and, and did uh, within a couple of years after that, because of the FAO data, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, that data is suspect in some of the small countries. They just don't have really, really good data, but it's really, it's really good in, in big, large countries. But anyway, so, but here's the thing is the sugar was high and the vegetable oils were very low is what the data showed in Kiribati. And I, and they had almost no macro degeneration. Um, 0.2%, you know, versus as high as 22% in the United States. Well, so I didn't like this because I, I was thinking, you know, sugar had to be a big part of the problem, but it just didn't seem to be in that nation. And so this was one of the first eye-opening pieces of data. I didn't, like I said, I didn't even like it <laughs> because I assumed that sugar was a big problem, but it just didn't seem to be in that nation. Um, uh, and so, um, but this is what, this is what I've seen ever since. I, I, if, um, let me just throw this out really quickly since we're on the subject. Um, in China, for example, um, the sugar consumption is really low. I've got the, I've got, uh, some data here handy just so that I don't, I don't give incorrect numbers. But, um, since the, about 19, uh, eight, um, 80, the sugar consumption in China has been about two and a half percent of their calories. It's, it's no more than about, um, uh, um, four teaspoons of sugar per day. All right. On average. All right. And this has been stable since 1980 ish hasn't changed two and a half percent of calories. Now, the, to put that in perspective, the World Health Organization recommends that we not consume more than 10% of our calories as sugar, right? So they're one fourth that level. It's they're the eighth lowest sugar consumption in the world. And compare that this to United States, whose most recent data, 2010, 
Americans were consuming 21% of their diet is sugar. All right. Wow. Okay. So what happens to the, oh, to the uh, Chinese in China over the last few decades? Well, between, um, between 1991 and 2015, overweight and obesity increased from 15.3% to 42%. So almost a threefold increase in their overweight and obesity. All right. How about cancer? Cancer increased overall. This is their total cancer incidence. Um, 3.2 fold between 1990 and 2017. It was um, 495 cases. These are major cancers. 495 per 100,000. This is new incidents per year um, in 1990. And that increased to... 1,587 per 100,000 in um, 28, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 2017, all right? Um, cardiovascular disease increased 15% between 1990 and 2017. Their diabetes increased from 3.7% in 1990 to 6.7%, um, so it almost doubled. Um, by 2017, that's a 78% increase in their diabetes. Um, they also had a 465 increase, 465% increase in their lung cancer. Um, but the smoking was going down. All right. So, so the sugar was stable and extraordinarily low while their obesity triples, their diabetes almost doubles, their cardiovascular disease increases. Um, lung cancer goes up 465%. What's wrong? Well, their vegetable oils, which were 30 calories per day, almost none, um, uh, in 1961, increased to um, uh, 204 calories per day by 2018. So about a seven-fold, I think that is, increase in their vegetable oils, right? So Which, which again, lines up? Yeah. So, the, so, you know, the, there, and there's so much other data that's, that is supportive of this hypothesis that it's vegetable oils driving overweight, obesity, and chronic disease, you know, n not so much sugar. Now I'm not, you know, this makes people mad. It really, this angers people, the people in the sugar camp and the low carb camps and I'm not blaming them. I mean, they, they've been, everybody's been led to believe that, you know, sugar's the villain for everything. But the, but the data does not support that almost anywhere you look. I mean, for example, you know, in recent decades, and we could get into some of the details, but, but uh, sugar has been on the decline in the United States, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, in Israel, and in Japan, while um, obesity and diabetes and cancers increase markedly. In fact, they're even increasing faster, you know, since sugar has been on the decline. Now, sugar is a nutrient deficient food, and I am not recommending that people consume substantial amounts of sugar or more sugar. Not at all. I think sugar is part of the problem. And I've been saying this since I went public with this hypothesis regarding processed foods and macro degeneration back in 2016. So almost eight years ago. I've been saying, you know, refined flour, sugars, and vegetable oils are the primary problem. 
Um, but it's the sugar oil, it's the vegetable oils that are the huge driver, the primary driver. I would say 90% of the problem. Wow. So er, early on, I came across, I read the uh, China study, and that absolutely terrified me from meat and, you know, dairy and all the things that basically the synopsis was the culprit. And, you know, the glaringly obvious thing that was missing was paying attention to the vegetables there. And so when you look at the data you have presented, it matches up perfectly. Like, I mean, it's it's wild, whereas the support for meat causes these problems is not there. So as, as I've gone <laughs> into this, and I think back as you were talking about Weston A. Price and stuff, and I asked Sally Fallon Morell, I said, what, what's the number one thing that we can do? And she says, get the fats right. And so that mm -hmm. goes perfectly in line with what, what you're saying. So what, what are vegetables? Can you name some of those top culprits? And then what is the mechanism that is causing the problems? Yeah, good question. And by the way, Sally Fallon Morell uh, and I are, are friends and have been for a long time, you know, since 2016, I got to know her. Actually, you know, when I started going public with uh, my research and we connected, um, for those who don't know her, she's the founder and president of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And I've presented at their conferences for a number of years, but anyway, um, so the, so the vegetable oils is a catch all term for any kind of edible oil and they're not all bad. And, and so we, there's nuance here and we just can't throw them all into the same, uh, you know, garbage can there. It's, that's, that wouldn't be appropriate whatsoever. But, um, the, so the vegetable oils, um, would be, I kind of break them down into seed oils fruit oils and tropical oils is the way I break them down. And so the, the seed oils are the ones that are really highly polyunsaturated, meaning they're very high in omega-6 fat. And these are the ones that I, I believe are particularly dangerous. And those would be, um, and one of them is a bean, all, most all the rest are seeds. That's why we kind of lump them together as so-called seed oils, but they're mostly Soybean, corn, canola, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, peanut, and, and sesame oils. So those are the oils that are high in omega-6 linoleic acid, the primary omega-6 fat. And they run about, um, in terms of their percentage of omega-6 linoleic acid, they run from about 20% in canola oil all the way up to 78% omega-6 linoleic acid in safflower oil. All right, so they're very, very high in omega-6 fat. The fruit oils, um, I essentially that's olive oil and avocado oil. They're much lower in omega-6 fat, which I think is the primary reason that they are so much healthier. So um, olive oil averages about 10% omega-6 linoleic acid, but it runs the gamut from about 3% to 27% omega-6 linoleic acid. Avocado oil is about 14% omega-6 linoleic acid. All right. Now, then you've got the, um, the tropical oils. That would be coconut, palm, and palm kernel oils. And coconut and palm kernel oils are only 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. 
That makes them extremely healthy. Now, not healthier than animal fats like butter or, or tallow, uh, beef tallow, um, but very, very healthy. They're very, very stable um, and can be consumed as much as you want, I think, very safely. Um, palm oil is 10% omega-6 linoleic acid, approximately like olive oil, but I don't think it's nearly as safe as true, authentic, fresh olive oil because um, palm oil is significantly heated in its extraction process or its production process, and it has more of the advanced lipid oxidation in products. Um, and we can get into that. So, so you, you ask, you know, why are they dangerous? So, so here's the thing is that the seed oils or the high omega-6 oils, um, as I mentioned, they, they accumulate in our body fat. And over about a three-year period, your body will begin to reflect at, on a percentage the amount of fatty acids or the, let me, let me rephrase that, the, um, ratios of fatty acids of whatever you're consuming. So if you're consuming high omega-6 uh, fat in your diet, um, you will end up with high omega-6 fat in your body fat, which means also in your cell membranes, your inner mitochondrial membranes, everywhere you have fat, you'll, you'll accumulate this, uh, the higher levels of fatty acids. This is absolutely proven. Nobody can question it. Um, and so what, what does that do? Well, that sets us up with those high levels of omega-6 in your body. That sets us up for uh, a biological milieu that is pro-oxidative. Um, this is the equivalent of rusting. It's pro-inflammatory. Everybody knows what that means. Um, it's toxic through advanced lipid oxidation end products. And it is nutrient deficient, meaning that these none of the vegetable oils or edible oils, not one of them contains vitamins A, D, or K2. And you, these are incredible, as you know, these are incredibly important to our health. And the, those vitamins, A, D, and K2, they are in significant amounts in beef fat, for example, or any kind of ruminant fat. You will get significant amounts of those three uh, fat-soluble vitamins. Those don't exist at all in any kind of edible oil, even the healthy oils like coconut oil, palm kernel oil, or maybe, you know, good quality olive oil. You don't get those fat-soluble vitamins. So again, it's back to those, you know, pillars of hazard. That's what, that's what's ultimately driving this, all of this, uh, or, I think the huge majority of this chronic disease. Um, go into the nuts. That was something in uh, with with Doctor Barry that y'all were discussing were were nuts. And is that something from a, an ancestral view we should be eating? Should be eating a lot of. And do you have these categories too? Because is say you know a macadamia and a sunflower equivalent. Yeah, good question. So the nut oils are, I think, problematic, and so is consuming high amounts of nuts. That another, in no way, shape, or form would this be anywhere near the risk um, consuming these the 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 nuts or nut oils of consuming vegetable uh, 
oils. Why? Because, well, the nut oils can be really high. They can range just as high in omega-6 linoleic acid as a lot of the vegetable oils. But um, but the, the nut oils, see, you know, to get the oil out of a nut, all you have to do is just press it. Just like you do with sesame seeds, for example, um, or olives. You know, you just press them and you, you extract the oil. You don't have to go through the, you know, the like the, the vegetable oils, the, 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 the seed oils. They um, are crushed, pressed, heated, and then chemically alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized. And then in the in the deodorization process, they're you know the, that's the final heating. They get up to temperatures of four hundred to about five hundred and fifty five degrees, five hundred and fifty degrees Fahrenheit. And this produces a lot of oxidation and uh, advanced lipid oxidation end products. Um, so, so those are particularly dangerous, but the nuts back to that, um, that, you know, again, whatever you're, if you're consuming high levels of omega-6, you will accumulate that in your body and that sets you up for all these problems and consuming nuts in, in large amounts is not ancestral. There isn't, there's only about one or two populations on the planet that I know of that ever consume significant amounts of nuts, like the Kung, uh, or I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, but the Kung San, K-U-N-G, it starts with exclamation point, Kung San population, for example, in Africa, they consume significant amounts of, uh, of the uh, Mongongo nut, um, but this population is not healthy and they're not, they're, their children often, I see that they quite frequently have uh, kwashiorkor, uh, which means that they're starving, you know, that's the bloated belly um, and then the rest of their body um, emaciated. And, um, and so they're literally starving. So they're fine. You know, that's, that's one of the few f- foods they can get. They just can't hardly get any animal foods at all, you know, very, very little. So they're starving. But anyway, um, you know, only in, you know, the past, I don't know, probably 60 or 100 years, could we, you know, have nuts been, been, you know, farmed and grown in, in huge amounts where you can just eat all the nuts you want. You make a diet out of nuts if you want to, right? And that there's, that's not ancestral. Uh, nuts would have been mostly seasonal or, or or at least consumed in very small amounts. They just should not be consumed in huge amounts. That makes sense. And that is something that uh, I had to really question looking into because it's, you know, it's proposed as a health food, like eat, eat nuts, eat lots and lots of nuts because of, you know, X, Y, Z. And so as, as we just continue just to dive in and try to figure out, like I have no agenda. I just simply want to know the truth and what should I, you know, feed my family? What should we eat? How should we be optimized, you know, and, and keep cancer uh, at bay? The ancestral lens is something I've been truly fascinated uh, by and, and, you know, had the privilege of visiting with some incredible people that are well versed in that. So what got you paying attention to, to the ancestral diet and how do you view the kind of the nuances based off of say, you know, geography? Yeah, good question. Um, so if you look at, you know, ancestrally living populations around the world, uh, which is what Weston A. Price did, 
Um, you know, he, he actually was physically there evaluating populations on five continents, 14 nations, hundreds of tribes and villages, right? And these populations had drastically different diets, right? And yet the things that, that tied them together was they, on their native traditional diets, they were all healthy. They were basically free of chronic disease for the most part. And, um, and, and yet their diets just were drastically different. And I could give a couple examples like the, like I would just say the, the ones that I've kind of focused on in recent years, the Maasai tribe of Kenya and Tanzania, for example, um, their diet is, as you know, milk, meat, and blood from the cattle they herd primarily. That's like the Muran cohort of the Maasai, that's the, that's the men uh, boys to men, actually, but the Muran cohort is the men age four, 14 to about 34 or something like that. And they are forbidden from eating any fruit or vegetables. So their diet is exclusively milk, meat, and blood from the cattle they herd. And it's almost entirely milk. I mean, it's, that's where they're getting almost all of their calories. Their diet is 66% animal fat. And that diet then is 40 to 46% saturated animal fat, yet they have no heart disease. They're lean, fit as could be. Um, and I presume they have virtually no metabolic syndrome or diabetes, right? And probably almost no other disease, but, I, but they've not been extensively evaluated for, for all of that. Uh, but we, you know, everybody that's ever evaluated them has found them to be very, very healthy, right? So you look at them, and there's, uh, I might mention that like the, uh, the, the, uh, the Papua New Guineans of Tukacinta, um, um, this is, these are Highlanders. They live at, uh, about 6,500 to 8,000 feet. Um, they were studied by Professor Sinnott and White from Australia back in, um, the 1960s and early seventies. And they, they were studied for four years. Their diet is, more than 90% sweet potato. They, um, they are not vegans. They, they occasionally feast on pork and very rarely on chicken. And um, so their diet is about 94.6% carbohydrate is what Senate White found. Um, it's 3% fat, 2.4% protein. So this is the lowest protein, lowest fat diet in the world. And yet, the Papua New Guineans of Tukacinta had, they had, they had no obesity, no diabetes, um, no known or very little coronary heart disease. I think it was virtually none. Um, uh, you know, metabolically, they were extremely healthy. Now they had, they, they weren't, they weren't perfectly healthy. Their, den their dentition, their teeth were terrible. They had terrible tooth decay and they had high amounts of arthritis. Uh, and I think that comes from the fact that they had way too little animal foods. They didn't have enough animal foods to provide their fat soluble vitamins, right? So, so but anyway, there, there you have just a drastically different diet, you know, and yet healthy. Um, so then let me just mention one more. So like the Tokelauans of the South Pacific, their diet, like most all of the South Pacific Islanders, um, is um, or traditionally was coconut mostly most of their diet more than fifty percent of their diet is coming from coconut, fish, starchy tubers, and fruit. 
That's it. Coconut, fish, starchy tubers, and fruit. Their diet is like 56% fat. It is 50% saturated fats, the highest saturated fat diet in the world, even higher than the Maasai. Um, yeah, um, uh, but they had no vegetable oils, no processed foods, right? And um, they're lean, fit, no diabetes, no heart disease, fantastically healthy. So right there, you know, we've got three drastically different diets, right? And yet all these populations are healthy, but none of them have refined flours, refined sugar, and they certainly don't have vegetable oils. And one of the things that, that I, so I, when I began understanding this, you know, which is probably five or six years ago in, in, in better detail, I, st I started looking at the omega-6 linoleic acid percentage of these diets, these ancestral diets around the globe. And what I found, Logan, was that they all were under 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. In fact, I think the highest was about one, it's about 1.6 or 1.7%. And that's in the Maasai because their diet is extremely high in fat, right? 66% animal fat right? The, again, coming from milk, meat, and blood, that their diet. But anyway, but all these ancestrally living populations, their, their omega-6 is under 2%. So we'll, let's contrast that with Americans. Our, our uh, um, omega-6 consumption was 7.2%, I believe it was, by 1999, and 11.5%, I think is the number, by 2008, right? It should be under 2%. In fact, it probably should be under 1.7%, like where the Maasai are. And yet we're at 11.5%, 11 I believe is that number. Um, and so, and, and we've also looked at, we modeled the diets of Americans way back in 1865 when we had absolutely zero vegetable oil consumption because the first vegetable oil entered the entered American food supply about 1866, it was cottonseed oil. But anyway, we modeled the diet of Americans in 1865 when it was almost completely ancestral with the exception of sugar. And um, our diet was about 1.1% uh, omega-6 linoleic acid. It was about 2.4 grams per person per day. Well, that increased to, that, that doubled by 1909 when we had cottonseed oil and soybean oil in our diet, it went from 1.1% to about 2.24%. And then again, as I mentioned, by 1999, we're at 7 point something percent. I don't remember exactly what that number is by 1999 and 11.5% by 2008. So our omega-6 linoleic acid increased from 2.4 grams approximately in 1865 per day, per person per day, to 29 grams per person per day. And it's at about an 11 fold increase in mass or in percentage. And again, so then this, you know, all that, that omega-6 fat is accumulating in our bodies and setting us up for disaster. You'd, you'd mentioned earlier about the omega-6s and the linoleic acid being part of like the mitochondrial membrane. And so like as as that becomes more uh, understandable for me, uh, electron transport train, the process of producing ATP. And, you know, when you when you look at how it should be versus, say, the Warburg effect and and all that. Talking with Dr. Laszlo Boros has opened my eyes to the deuterium aspect and what he says 
almost perfectly lines up with what you say on the vegetable oil. So mm. is is it possible that the oh, the combination of say linoleic acid and the, the omega sixes and deuterium all come together to create this absolute perfect destroying storm? Yeah, I honestly don't know. I really don't know anything about deuterium and its its effects. Uh, that's I mean, I've heard <laughs> I've heard about that, Logan, but I don't. I have never investigated. I'm not. I, so I can't speak with any knowledge or authority there at all but i will tell you that the that the this there are scientists that have worked out the the um mechanism by which high omega-6 diets drive mitochondrial dysfunction and i presented this at the ancestral health symposium in in 2019 which was held at the University of California, San Diego. So that presentation is available online if anybody wants to see that. Um, it's AHS 2019. And it took me about 10 minutes just to present it. But, but basically what, what happens with high omega-6 diets is, again, they, the omega-6 linoleic acid accumulates in your body fat. It accumulates in your inner mitochondrial membrane. And... Um, I'm going to I'm going to oversimplify this because we're just verbal, you know, audible here without images and so forth. And it's it's a very, very, very complex process. But um, ultimately, high omega-6 diets damage a molecule called cardiolipin, which is the key component. It's a phospholipid of the inner mitochondrial membrane and that cardiolipin in a high omega-6 diet, it is damaged, it's oxidized, which is what's happening all over the body, it's oxidizing. And when it oxidizes, it has a conformational shape change, and this causes that inner mitochondrial membrane to become leaky. And meaning that, well, the inner mitochondrial membrane has to hold a hydrogen proton gradient. And this is how we develop energy. And when, but that those hydrogen protons normally come through the inner mitochondrial membrane through something called ATP synthase, which is how they produce ATP. They convert, they phosphorylate ADP, adenosine diphosphate, to ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the energy, energy currency of the cell. But in a high omega 6 diet, the cardiolipin is damaged, it's oxidized, it changes shape, and that inner mitochondrial membrane becomes leaky. And those hydrogen protons leak through the membrane instead of going through the ATP synthase. And what happens then is you lose energy production. And um, the, so this is why when people are consuming high omega-6 diets, they become energy deprived. So they're tired. And this is, I'm not saying this is the only reason, but this is part of it. This is a major part of it. They become tired and yeah, and then they're, so their energy is going down and they can't burn fuel properly. So they're eating even less and wondering why they're still, you know, becoming more and more overweight, obese and, you know, uh, de de devastated in their life. And, uh, but this all comes back to this mitochondrial dysfunction. So, but let me just say, so one, so when you have this leaky membrane and you can't produce ATP properly, now that's mitochondrial dysfunction right there. And then very next thing that happens is that um, 
you have an increase in reactive oxygen species as part of this mechanism, which drives the whole mechanism, causes further oxidation of the linoleic acid, which, you know, which becomes then a vicious cycle. And the very next step is insulin resistance. And this is proven. So, well, insulin resistance at the cellular level, I just say the cell is a microcosm of the entire body. And so when the cell becomes insulin resistant, the body becomes insulin resistant. And for people who don't understand this, it just means that insulin can no longer do its job of driving glucose and proteins, amino acids, I should say, into cells um, for proper metabolic function. And so, um, so this is why, you know, all of these diseases, whether you're looking at overweight, obesity, coronary heart disease, atherosclerosis, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, dementia, age-related macular degeneration, all of these diseases are um, unified by one thing, and it's mitochondrial dysfunction. And you can see it pathologically. You'll see them in most of these diseases I just mentioned. You can see that the mitochondria... Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, that the 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 structure, the microstructure of the mitochondria is damaged in all of these diseases. Why? Well, it's mostly coming from what the the mechanism I just described: high omega six driving mitochondrial damage, dysfunction, and then insulin resistance, and ultimately leading to all of these downstream effects. Whether it's overweight, obesity diabetes, metabolic syndrome, um, cancer, on and on. I love it. And and you absolutely just laid out kind of that first question to, to bring together this perfect metabolic uh, storm with that because Dr. Boros's kind of big thing is that with the ATP synthase, the nanomotor of the mitochondria, deuterium gets where hydrogen's supposed to be and it breaks it. So it, you've got all of this coming together. I oh. think you are going to be tickled when you when, – when you, I know you're going to look into all that and it, it's going to be – You've got the picture, my friend, and that that's just another layer I, I feel and believe truly. Mm-hmm. What what is really fascinating to me is the 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 carnivore push, right? And the the reason that I believe that it's working is what we we've just talked about. It, the omega sixes are gone. The deuterium is extremely low, um, and so how do you suggest we? we eat the way it uh, you know it's in line with this ancestral uh, way it is promoting uh, health based off the data that you have worked on so how should we eat yeah i'm glad you ask and <clears throat> I, I i just want to mention you know and i i again th- this seems to anger people too that um because i i'm often presenting evidence that you know is not really supportive of the low carb um, or you know slash even you know carnivore type of or keto or carnivore type of camps, and so people don't. There's a lot of people that really don't like what I'm doing because of this, and um, um, but the um, 
the, when you look at diets that are successful, they all have uh, commonalities, right? They, they have to. And, you know, this goes back to what we've talked about before that you look at all these different diets and the one, you know, they, they all basically mostly eliminate sugar, refined flours and vegetable oils. And they're all low in omega six if they're really successful diet. Um, so the, the interesting thing about the low carb or keto diet is the fact that, um, when you, when you eliminate, when you, when you drop your carbohydrates down, you know, you're eliminating things that, um, like, for example, potatoes, rice, grains, um, these things are, these are the food components that are associated with vegetable oil consumption. Because in processed foods and in restaurant foods, fast foods, you always have the vegetable oils in with the carbs, essentially. That's where they're coming from. You know, that's where, that's what they're cooking in and that's what they're putting in all of the processed foods, right? They don't put butter, lard and beef tallow in any kinds of processed foods. I shouldn't say any, but almost no processed foods will you ever find butter, lard or beef tallow. And you almost never will find the, the, you know, butter, lard or beef tallow in a restaurant or in a fast food. And so, you know, this is the reason that fast foods are so dangerous primarily is they're exclu almost exclusively using canola oil and soybean oil, for example, in the United States. And it varies a, you know, around the world. But, but anyway, so, so when you, so, so the, the thing, the thing is, is the people that are um, low carb or keto um, and, and by keto, I mean, ketogenic diets, which is very, very low carb. Um, these people are generally unknowingly and unwittingly also lowering their vegetable oil consumption. And I'm convinced this is the primary reason that the low carb keto diets work is not because they're low carb, because the very high carb diets are very, very successful all over the world. Most of the Asians, extremely high um, carbohydrate diets, like the Japanese, the Okinawans, 84% carbohydrate diet um, uh, historically, up until they started be, you know, consuming vegetable oils in the 1950s and 60s. Um, it, right? The Okinawans, one of the healthiest populations on the planet. Right. And, uh, uh, but anyway, so, um, th there's, uh, I've presented data where, um, if you look at the omega six consumption, where it's coming from in the American diet, there's, um, and this is data from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. So it's really solid data. Um, they, they list 15 foods where people are getting their omega-6 linoleic acid and 10 of those 15 are very high carbohydrate. You know, there are things like, again, potatoes and pasta and rice. That's what they are primarily. It's those, those things. And so again, when people start, you know, start getting rid of these carbohydrates, those kinds of carbohydrates, they're unknowingly getting, they're also reducing their omega, their vegetable oil consumption. And they don't even know it. Um, so, so, but the, the point is you don't have to reduce your carb consumption as long as they're healthy carbs. So the low carb and keto diets, they also generally like they're, they're reducing, um, processed carbs, right? They're, re they're reducing the problematic carbs 
like refined flours and refined sugar, added sugar, right? They, they, so they're getting rid of that. And then they're also reducing their vegetable oil. So, so, but like, for example, you know, I, um, I think you asked me what, um, you know, what I recommend as a diet. Well, I, I don't recommend anything in terms of macronutrient ratios. I'm, I'm in the same camp as Weston Price in that, I think, you know, he, he never even discussed it, right? He never presented anything about macronutrient ratios, the ratios of proteins to carbs to fats, because he, it was just so obvious that it didn't, it wasn't important, I think, is the reason he didn't ever even discuss it. Um, I, you know, I, I've had to look at this in quite in a lot of detail and I would, um, and so I think that, you know, you, you can follow almost any kind of ancestrally appropriate diet that you want to, and you can make that high carb or you could, you could make it low carb if you want to. Um, but it needs to be free of processed foods and free of vegetable oils and lots of refined carbs, right? Th those should be greatly minimized. So like, for example, you know, my diet is, I, um, I consume probably around 10 to 12 ounces of, of meats per day. That would be, and maybe a little more than that, but that would be, um, you know, like mostly beef, buffalo, buffalo or bison, chicken and fish or seafood. And then I eat, I eat small, small amounts of egg. Well, I typically about one to two eggs per day. Um, and then I eat all kinds of carbohydrate rich foods, um, mostly sweet potatoes, potatoes, um, some rice, some grains, um, and lots of fruits, um, all kinds of, all kinds of different fruits. Um, and then, and I also eat some, you know, some fermented foods like, like sauerkraut, kimchi, some yogurt, some, uh, kefir, these kinds of things. So, so my, my diet is rich in fruits and vegetables. And I didn't even talk about the vegetables, but those are a big component of my diet. But, but, uh, but anyway, my, my diet is rich in it's, you know, again, it's you know, what I call meats, fruits, vegetables, um, some grains. And it is, you know, probably, and I don't look, hardly ever look at the, the ratios, but my diet is, Probably typically a, around, I think it's ballpark 20% protein, 40 some percent carb and 30% uh, fat, something like that. But again, I'm just throwing out some ballpark numbers and I, I know that didn't quite add up to 100%, but I'm just kind of giving you some ballparks. No, absolutely. And no, I love it. And, I, and again, I have no agenda. I just want to figure out what, what works uh, and what, what we need to apply and continue to learn. So how important is the diet of the, say, the animals that, that we consume? How important is the, the feed? Because you'd mentioned uh, with some of the Pacific Islanders that they were eating the chicken and the pork, but I feel pretty confident they weren't eating uh, the same feed that our animals are are in the conventional model. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really important point. So there's three ways to to get your that you that are important in terms of getting omega-6 low in your diet, getting it down to under 2%, down to an ancestral level. And number one is you gotta get rid of the seed oils. Number two is is you have to eat animals that are eating their ancestral diet. Let me come back to that. Number three is keep keep the nuts and seeds low. 
like, you know, really minimal on, on the nuts and seeds because they're high in omega-6. So about the animals. So an, animals that, um, which I'll be telling you that your audience may learn from this, but uh, you probably won't. Logan, but <laughs> I'm sure you already know this, but it's the mono, monogastric animals that that single stomach stomach animals that um, will develop will if they're fed a, a diet high in omega six, they will develop high omega six in their fat in their tissues, right? And so the monogastric animals that that we consume are primarily chickens and pigs. Um, and so chickens and pigs are single stomach animals like humans. Um, and so it's, so if those animals are fed uh, a diet that is conventional, as you said, the, that means that they're rich in corn and soy and corn and soy are high in omega-6. And that means the animals will develop high omega-6. Well, but if those, if so Chickens and pigs, for example, that are fed their native traditional diet, which doesn't include corn and soy, um, and, and I can't get into you know the, the all of the what they should be eating right now, but um, but anyway, the, those animals will have very low omega six in their fat if they're fed their traditional diet, and this was proven. One of the studies from Ian Pryor and colleagues way back in 1969, they they assessed the the, the the adipose, that's the body fat of chickens and pigs. And it was two and a half percent in the chickens and 2% in the pigs, omega-6 linoleic acid. Well, where does that end up in chickens and pigs that are fed GMO or whatever, corn and soy? Um, it ends up being around 20%, which is where wow. humans are now. And yeah. so this is why if you're going to consume chicken and pigs, they need to be ancestrally fed, which means corn and soy free. All right. So, so, um, yeah, that, that's the, uh, I think that's the answer to your question or did I cover it? Logan? Yeah, you, you did. I think that just okay. distressing the importance of an animal having an ancestral appropriate diet is really yeah. what we need to do. So part, part of what we, I, I do is I have a farmer's market. I mean, that's, that's my day job. It's building out a local food system. That is what I'm super, super passionate about, but I want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is, you know, pushing a direction towards the regenerative, towards the nutrient density in, in that food system. And, th and that's why we have these, these talks is to continue to learn and apply that. The flip side of everything that you have said on the omega six is going to be like the omega threes, right? And the, uh, visited with uh, Stefan Van Vliet, and he was talking about the statistical significance of omega-3s in grass-fed, grass-finished on these biodiverse pastures that, uh, you know, the argument was like, you got to get your omega-3s from salmon, right? It's got to be coming from fish, wild-caught fish. Whereas he's saying, you know, the positives of having the appropriate ruminant meat provides these nutrients on you know, again, a statistically relevant amount. So what, what can you add to the omega-3 side as far as, you know, positive, if, if you believe that, uh, to counter those negatives of the omega-6? Yeah, good, uh, good question. So I, I, and I really didn't maybe quite finish what I should have earlier, but this will all tie together. Um, so ruminants, which are the, the, these are the hooved animals that have multi-compartment stomachs, like, like, like 
you know, cattle, beef, um, bison, buffalo, these, uh, um, these animals, they have a multi-compartment stomach. And one of those stomachs is really um, what you might call a biohydrogenation chamber. So they can take a high omega-6 diet, even if you're feeding cattle um, vegetable oils um, or corn and soy, they in what that's that one stomach, they can take that omega-6 and hydrogenate it and convert it into saturated and monounsaturated fats and store their own fat in that way. And so that so that means that beef is always low in omega-6, no matter what the animals are feed, whether they're on 100% grass or whether they're fed corn and soy, they're going to have low omega-6. And, and I'll give you some numbers. So like the uh, uh, one study showed that the omega-6 linoleic acid in beef fat was 2% um, on, again, 100% grass-fed, um, but grain-fed, um, or they're mostly mostly all grain finished. They're, they're raised on grass first, but anyway, grain finished, they're only about three, three and a half percent omega-6 linoleic acid. Again, compare that to soybean oil at 56% omega-6 linoleic yeah. acid. Okay. So they're, so again, they're about 2% omega-6 linoleic acid, but their omega-3 is only about half a percent or 1% or something like that. And if you, if you go back to, uh, I, mean, I mean, this is a extremely difficult question to answer. What should our omega-3 be um, in relation to this? So, but if you look at 19th century Americans, if we go clear back to 1865, again, where we, you know, before we had any vegetable oils and we know that the omega-6 consumption was about 1.1% of the diet, the omega-3 was probably only about 0.5% roughly. All right. So, and Americans at that time had no coronary heart disease cancer was very, very unusual. Um, it was, you know, one in 188 deaths in 1811, roughly that's 0.5% of deaths instead of 31% of deaths like it is today. Um, you know, age-related macular degeneration in that, at that time was unknown. Alzheimer's disease was unknown. Metabolic syndrome was unknown. Diabetes was extremely rare on and on and on, right? When we didn't have any vegetable oils and our omega-3 was really low. Now, this is what gets interesting to your question about omega-3 is, well, we're, you know, were Americans all consuming, you know, wild caught fish and seafood? Absolutely not. In 1865, there was no refrigeration. There was uh, transportation was extremely slow, pr primarily by train, right? They couldn't, they couldn't move, you know, frozen foods anywhere. Um, so the, the people getting fish and, and seafood, they were primarily the ones that were coastal or they lived near a river or a lake that they fished from. Right. And so I, I'm just, it's hard to estimate, but I, I'm quite certain that 90 to 95% of Americans that were landlocked and far from getting, you know, places where they could get fish and seafood, they all, they didn't have these diseases, right? So they had extremely low omega-3 consumption, probably 0.3%, maybe 0.5% of their diet. That's all it was. Yet they had no heart disease. They had no Alzheimer's. Why? So do we need omega, you know, do we need fish oil? Do we need fit? Do we have to have fish? Do we have to? No, you don't. You can get all the omega-3 and get your omega-6. Those are the two 
there's you know two essential fatty acids, omega-6 linoleic acid and omega-3 alpha linolenic acid, LA and ALA for short. And you only need about 0.5% of your diet from LA and point probably 0.3% from ALA. That's it. And you can get all of that from eating beef or chicken or pork. It's per, I mean, it's absolutely a certainty. You don't have to have, or you'll get it from, you know, from a diet that's almost vegan as well, because all fat, all natural fats have a LA and ALA. If it, if it's a food and it has fat, it will have LA and ALA. And if, and you might think, well, but there's fat free foods. There's, you know, apples and oranges and white rice and whatnot. Yet, no, even those, the tiny bit of fat that they have will have LA and ALA and you will get your sufficient amounts if you're eating food period <laughs> awesome <laughs> i love it i love it so what's uh what is next for for you um i think uh suzanne she's is she's in africa right now uh oh, she's or, going in a couple of weeks in a couple of weeks so yeah, yeah. uh y'all yeah. got all kinds of really cool things going on uh, but uh, what what's next and where do we send uh those that want to learn more uh, yeah, good question. So the um, this is our book that Suzanne Alexander and I work. Let's see if I get this. It's called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. Um, and the, this uh, came out last summer and we're very proud of it. It's about three years in the works for me. And um, but it's really, you know, the culmination of about 12 or 13 years of work uh, that I've been doing over since 2011. Um and um, I'll be uh, I'll be staying home here to um, to work on all sorts of uh, you know continuing projects and and I'm going to be working on some very some short books that are that will be very so this one the ancestral diet revolution will be really like the flat maybe the might be considered the flagship um, book but we're gonna I'm gonna work on some uh, some uh, much much shorter books that will hit all these different subjects you know. And, uh, um, but anyway, but we, yeah, we, uh, we would love for people to get the book, the ancestral diet revolution and leave us reviews on Amazon, um, that will help to spread this message. I don't earn anything from this, um, book or from any of the work that I do in this field. And neither does Suzanne Alexander, my co-author. Um, we work, we're, we're, we're volunteers. In this regard, um, I've already spent an entire career in ophthalmology, and uh, this is the work I do now. For, you know, for altru altruistic reasons, and I I love this work, and I I just want people to help us, like you. To, we thank you for helping us spread this message, Logan. Absolutely. Well, y'all did a wonderful job on the book, and it is a monster. So you you put a lot into it, uh, both of y'all, and it's uh, it lays it out sincerely in beautifully it really does so just thank you and we're just going to keep trucking along I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed following along with your your work